Well, one of the fun things about going first when we do a series is you get to pick what you're going to do. And, uh, um, you know, last time Bob got to go first and he wanted to do Isaiah. Uh, the time before that, I, went, I got to go first and we did Ephesians. But uh, tonight we're going to start uh, uh, in Galatians and we'll be in chapter one. And uh, Phil, I just, we're not going to make it to your verse tonight. I know you have your favorite verse in Galatians, but uh, we're not going to get to that one uh, tonight. Um, but Galatians um, is a letter which, among other things, Paul explains how God saves us. Or in other words, how God makes a sinful person right before him. Does God save us by faith in the finished work of Christ alone? Or does God save us by faith plus something else? That's the question that we're going to answer tonight. So we'll be reading the first nine verses of Galatians. Now, I'm not, I've got lots of verses we're going to throw up here tonight, but not this, just, I'd like you to look at it in your Bible, if you have uh, it with you. And I'll be reading at uh, Galatians uh, chapter 1, starting with verse 1 through verse 9. Paul, an apostle, not from men, nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father, who raised him from the dead, and all the brothers who are with me to the churches of Galatia, grace to you and peace from God, our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ who gave himself our sins to deliver us from the present evil age, according to the will of God and Father, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. I'm astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. As we've said before, so I now say again, if anyone's preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. Please pray with me. Father, as we start this study of Galatians, help us see the purity of the gospel that saves us from our sin. For we ask it in Jesus' name and for his sake. Now, as we go through our study tonight, I want to do three things. The first thing that we're going to do is we're going to do a short introduction of the book. Uh, number two, we're going to walk through the first five verses of Paul's opening uh, of the sender and the recipients. And then we're going to take a closer look at the apostolic warning that we have in verses six through nine. First, a, our short introduction. Galatians, I was raised a Lutheran. And, and uh, I have a great admiration for Martin Luther. I don't for the Lutheran church, but I have great admiration for him. But Luther was a man who struggled with his own assurance of salvation because he understood the death of sin in his heart. He wrote, and I should have a slide for this. There we go. Although I am a sinner by the law as touching the righteousness of the law, yet I despair not. Yet I die not, because Christ liveth, who is my righteousness and my everlasting and heavenly life. Also, Luther wrote, the epistle, the epistle to Galatians is my epistle, to which I've wedded myself. It is my Katie Bambora. And that was his, his wife. Who, uh, as you know, Luther had been a, a former monk, and his wife had been a former nun. Luther, Luther could think of no higher praise than to compare this epistle to his beloved wife. Few books of the Bible have as much historical impact on the church as the epistle to the Galatians. And as we'll see as we progress through, uh, progress through Galatians, 
that the primary theme is the just shall live by faith. And the key verse is really found in Galatians 3.11. Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. Now the letter to Galatians is probably the first epistle in the scriptures that was written by the Apostle Paul, and most probably the second earliest book of the New Testament after the letter of James. Paul wrote this letter to the Gentile churches in the southern Galatia region, whose cities included Iconium, Lystra, Derbe, and Pisidian Antioch. The important fact to remember here, Paul is writing to Gentiles, not Jewish Christians. And as we'll see, this is very important. These were the cities that Paul and Barnabas had visited during their first missionary journey. And it was also during this visit that Paul and Barnabas made their declaration that they would go to the Gentiles. They were in Pisidian Antioch, and the Jews were reviling Paul and Barnabas. And in Acts 13, 46, 48, it reads, And Barnabas and Paul spoke out boldly, saying, It was necessary that the word of God be spoken to you first, since you thrust it aside and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life. Behold, we are turning to the Gentiles. For so the Lord has commanded us, saying, I have made you a light for the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. And when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord, and as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. Galatians was probably most likely written in A.D. 48, which is about 15 years after the resurrection of our Lord. And in the timeline of Acts, it's probably written before the Council of Jerusalem that happens in Acts 15, and we'll be looking at Acts 15 here in a little bit. Now, in the text that we read tonight, there seems to be a problem uh, where they're deserting the gospel. Specifically, in verse 6, it says, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. The Galatians are deserting the God who had called them in the grace of Christ. Now, the specific cause of this problem isn't addressed in our text that we're looking at this evening, but we need to discuss it up front because it's the problem that underlies the entire letter. Sometime after Paul had left the churches in Galatia, a group of outsiders began to cause trouble in these Galatian congregations. Paul portrays them as cutting in front of the Galatians in their efforts to run the race of the Christian life in Galatians 5.7. You are running well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? These Jewish Christians, teachers, appear to have argued their case to the Galatians in three ways, theologically, ethically, and questioning Paul's authority. Theologically, they argued, in addition to believing in Christ, it was necessary to be circumcised in order to be saved. Thus, their basic message appears to have been faith in Christ plus the works of the law, or what we would say now, something else, equal justification. They may have argued that Paul had not told the Galatians the full gospel message, perhaps out of fear they would not have responded positively to his preaching if, they, if he told them about the necessity of keeping the Mosaic law. In addition to circumcision, from what we can glean from Paul's arguments, these teachers may have also pressed for keeping dietary laws and perhaps even the observance of the Jewish calendar. Ethically, the opponents may have argued that adopting the Mosaic law was necessary to provide guidelines for living the Christian life. As Gentile converts, the Galatians lacked a clear set of guidelines for living the Christian life. By becoming yoked to the Mosaic law, the Galatians would find a reliable guide in ordering their lives. Thirdly, these troublemakers were challenging Paul's authority and status as an apostle. 
It appears they were claiming that Paul was out of step with the apostles, especially Peter, James, and John. And we'll see in subsequent sermons how this all plays out later in Galatians. Well, that's our short introduction. And now I'd like to take a a closer look at these first five uh, verses that are in Galatians. You know, to address the problem that we see in this letter, Paul immediately feels it necessary to establish his apostolic authority. In verse 1, Paul, an apostle, not from men nor through man, but Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead. Paul usually begins all his letters with his name and his title as an apostle. But here and only in Galatians does Paul emphasize his apostolic authority isn't from a human authority, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father. This is to counteract what the Judaizers are saying, which is Paul's apostolic authority isn't on an equal basis with the other apostles. Paul seeks to deny that he received this commission to preach the gospel from the other apostles. Rather, he received his apostleship independently of them from God himself. Verse 2, And all the brothers who are with me to the churches of Galatia. You know, despite Paul's emphasis on God alone as the origin of his apostolic authority, he does not consider himself a solitary voice above others and unanswerable to anyone else. So before arguing for his independence from Jerusalem apostles, he makes sure that those receiving this letter know all of his brothers and sisters in Christ at his current location join him in what he's about to say. We don't know for sure where Paul wrote, where he was when he wrote Galatians, but it may have been Syrian Antioch, and if that's where he was, Barnabas was probably with him among the brothers. Missing in this verse is any further description of his readers, such as saints or God's people. The abruptness of the address probably signifies signals that Paul's displeasure with the Galatians, though caution on this point is called for because the description of the recipients of two other letters from Paul's earliest period are also quite brief. Verse 3, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul begins 10 of his 13 letters as he does here with a reference to grace and peace. This is a standard greeting for a Pauline letter. Each key term in this greeting, however, will play an important role later in the letter. Grace refers to God's generous, costly gift of redemption from sin through the death of his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. His son's redeeming death was the means that God used to become the father of believers. And they are all now his adopted children. God gives peace to believers in the sense that God's powerful spirit enables them to live in peace with one another. Paul wants the Christians in Galatia to experience all these blessings, but as he will quickly say, as he will quickly say, they are in danger of deserting God's gracious invitation to experience them. In verse 4, Paul describes for us what Jesus did. That he gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age according to the will of our God and Father. Paul's desire is to persuade the Galatians back to the true gospel. He insists throughout Galatians that the cross of Christ is the decisive and uniquely sufficient means to rescue sinners from death. Embracing Christ and cross through, the, through faith is all that's needed to effect a rescue and to bring believers into the new creation. This adding the law requiring to be circumcised to be saved to justification being peddled by the Judaizers minimizes the decisive turning point in all human history, which is the death and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. God has entered human existence in Christ order to rescue people from this evil world. 
And in verse 5, Paul, as Paul occasionally does when he adds a doxology to the end of a section of a letter, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. He gives glory to God for what he's written in verse 4, which is planning and putting into effect the rescue of sinners from this present evil age. Now we've come to the third thing I want to discuss, and that's the apostolic warning. But before we look at verses 6 through 9, uh, we need to see how the early church de dealt with this Judaizer problem. And so we're going to be in Acts 15. Now, if I had my choices, I would love, I would love for us to do uh, the uh, Acts of the Apostles. That, to me, is one of the best books in the, in the Bible. But uh, it's a long book, so we can't really do that one in a year. Uh, but we get to read it tonight, which is, which is great. So we're going to be in Acts 15. We're going to start with verses 1 through 11. There'll be some more after this one. And this is not the incident in Galatia, but it's in Syrian Antioch. It's the same problem, but this, but this happens uh, after Paul writes to the Galatians. So this is the same problem, but this, this incident here happens after Paul writes to the Galatians. So starting in Acts 1, Acts 15, verse 1. But some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them, Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and the elders about this question. So being sent on their way by the church, they passed through both Phoenicia and Samaria, describing the detail the conversions of the Gentiles and brought great joy to all the brothers. When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they declared all that God had done with them. But some believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees rose up and said, it's necessary to circumcise them and to order them to keep the law of Moses. The apostles and the elders were gathered together to consider this matter. And after there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, Brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did to us. And he made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. Now, therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear. But we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus, just as they will. So here we have in this passage, the Judaizers had arrived in Syrian Antioch and were teaching the Gentile Christians they had to be circumcised in order to be saved. And because there was such a decision, the church there appointed a commission that included Paul and Barnabas to go to Jerusalem to address this question. When they got there, they were well-received and gave testimony to how the Gentiles had received the word of God. But as we read in verse 5, but some believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees rose up and said, it's necessary to circumcise them and to order them to keep the law of Moses. And out of this discussion, the author of, of Acts, Luke, writes that Peter says, why are you putting the God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear, but we believe we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus just as they will. So Paul's arguing that Israel was unable, Peter's arguing that Israel was unable to fulfill the law perfectly and that salvation could not be attained through the law. 
The only means of salvation for both Jew and Gentile is God's grace in Jesus Christ. Essentially, Peter is saying here, while Paul will write in Ephesians about 10 years later, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and that is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one should boast. Now, James, the leader of the council, then quotes uh, Amos 9-11, verses uh, 9, 11, and 12, and alludes to Isaiah 40, 21, and Acts 15, 16 through 18. This is James speaking. He's quoting these, these scriptures. After this, I will return, and I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen. I will rebuild its ruins, and I will restore it, and then the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord. And all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who makes these things known from old. James' point is inciting Amos and Isaiah is that the Gentiles coming in as Gentiles, the Gentiles coming in as Gentiles have been God's plan from the beginning. The Gentiles will come to Yahweh as Gentiles. Therefore, the church should not put difficulties on the Gentiles who are turning to God. So the outcome of the council was, and this is found in Acts 15, 28 to 29, for it seemed good this is James uh, writing the letter. For it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay on you no greater burden than these requirements, that you abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols and from blood and from that what has been strangled and from sexual immorality. If you keep yourselves from these, you will do well. Farewell. Now the Gentiles do not need to become Jews to be saved. The Jews will remain Jews and the Gentiles will remain Gentiles. Gentiles are saved by by grace as the Jewish Christians are. The requirements in verse 29 are there to regulate fellowship between the Jews and Gen the Jews and Gentiles and to prevent idolatry. So that brings us back to uh, our text in Galatians 1, 6-9. I'm astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed, as we said before, so now I say again, if anyone's preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. And Paul's astonished that the Galatian believers were in the process of turning away from the truth. Part of his amazement was because it was happening so quickly after his last visit to them, or soon after the false teachers began their insidious work. The departure by the Galatians was simply not a uh, a departure from or a change of systematic theology, but from God himself. Instead, they were embracing a different gospel, one that was false. Paul insisted that a gospel of legalism, which adds work to faith, is not the same kind of gospel that he preached and by which the Galatians were saved. This false teaching was actually an attempt to pervert the gospel of Christ. And Paul was aware of the fact that at the very time he was writing this epistle, the false teachers were at work troubling and throwing the Galatians into confusion. The Apostle Paul considered these Judaizers not merely misguided Christians, but dangerous false teachers. Their message was not in any sense the gospel, but its opposite. Their message was so destructive, in fact, Paul was constrained to utter the harshest words found in any of his letters, placing an anathema, a curse on anyone who should preach a gospel other than the Galatians had heard and received from him. Should we have sympathy for these false teachers? This is what Martin Luther writes in his Galatians uh, commentary. The Apostle Paul had planted among the Galatians the pure doctrine 
of the gospel and the righteousness of faith, but by and by after his departure, there crept in certain false teachers, which overthrew all that he had planted and truly taught among them. For the devil cannot fiercely impugn the doctrine with all force and subtlety. Neither can he rest so long as he seeth any spark thereof remaining. We also, for this, for this only cause, we preach the gospel, do suffer the world, the devil and his ministers and all the mischief that they can work against us, both on the right hand and the left. So no, no sympathy for the false teachers. Now we're, we're, we're to the application part, so we're almost done. Now, if you remember last week, Pastor Sean was speaking in the morning service and he talked about the gospel and Galatians and he mentioned two words that start with D. Do you guys remember what they were? Do and done. That's what they were. The false teachers were preaching do, get circumcised, eat this, and don't eat that. But the apostle Paul was teaching, was preaching done. And as he wrote in Galatians 3.11, we are justified by faith alone. There's nothing we can do to justify ourselves before God is faith alone in the finished work of Christ. Now that sounds pretty easy, right? So this application is really easy. We just don't do anything. The problem is, is our hearts, in our hearts, because of, of, of remaining sin, we are spring-loaded to this law position. And this is what I mean. Um, I don't know how many of you use this uh, YouVersion app, but I love this YouVersion app that I have on my phone. If I open it up, it can tell me how many times I've opened up my Bible and read it in consecutive days. So I can open it up and it said, you've read the Bible 1,353 consecutive days. And I can go, oh, Tyler, you rock. You're, you're going you're gonna to go to heaven because of that, you know? And you start thinking, you know, I, that you can actually add. Now, we all know that you can't, but we start thinking that we can. And another thing that will happen is this. You're, you're with Rob Wilson, and he's giving the uh, evangelism explosion uh, message. And he asked the person, you know, on what basis uh, would God let you into heaven? And you know the answer is, my faith in the completed work of Christ. But there's this voice in your head that says, well, I haven't murdered anybody, and I know I'm better than my next door neighbor. Plus, the YouTube app just told me, this U app told me that I just read the Bible 1,353 days in a row. I know I'll get in heaven about that. And this is what happens to us. We start, even though we know, we know how this works. Now, there's a thing called personal holiness, which is sanctification. I'm not talking about that, but there is nothing, absolutely not anything that we can add to our justification to save us. It's all the completed work of Christ. There's nothing else we can add. We can read it 5,000 times. It's not going to help us. We need to trust Christ as our Savior. Please pray with me. Dear Heavenly Father, we are so thankful for the completed work of Christ and that belief in, in the completed work and receiving Christ as our Savior. We're united to him in faith, and there is nothing that we need to do to be able to add to our righteousness that we receive through Christ. It's a done deal. And we're thankful, Father, that, that it doesn't depend on us because we couldn't do it. And I pray, Father, that as, we, that as we look at what Christ did for us, 
that in our gratefulness for what he's done, that we do walk in our own personal holiness, because without it, no one will 